Hello, and welcome to the Loft Gathering Podcast. We will be talking about the contents of your mind, mouth, attitude, and life actions, and how these are the staples to further understand our authority in God's kingdom. Get ready to have your thinking challenged and your faith turned up. Here's Lisa. I, I just spent some time looking. I think we're on like day 26 or something. I don't know. There's 40 days in the thing, so you're still, you still have plenty of time to get in. So it has, the, has these devotions and then has scripture reading, and it's all leading up to Easter. But the word is abiding in Easter, living continually, consistently, ongoingly with endurance with the Easter idea in our hearts and minds. What if we did that as Christians? Abiding in Easter. Okay, so Jesus asks a lot of questions, and he explains a lot about who he is in the Gospels as we read them. And this devotion reflects those kinds of thoughts and questions. So I went back through, and I pulled out some of the questions that this devotion asks. Now, why am I taking time for this? Because it's almost Easter, and I don't want Easter to come and go and us to miss it again. Okay, so here's some of the questions. Is Jesus your way, your truth, and your life? Because he said he was. He said that. He said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no man's coming to the Father except through me. That's what he said. So is Jesus your way, your truth, and your life? It's, it doesn't matter. If, you, if the answer is no, that's okay. That's honest. We can work with that. But the idea is to get your mind to look at how American you are, maybe, or how rebellious. We think it's cool to be rebellious in this country. You know, I mean, and in a sense, it is. I like to be rebellious toward things that don't reflect the goodness of God. You know, I don't have a problem speaking out for those kinds of things. But we think being rebellious is cool. So how are we ever going to be obedient to God? We have to cast off rebellion in Jesus' name and be able to let him be our way our truth, and our life. He said it in John 14, 6. Okay. Secondly, next question. This is for you to evaluate yourself. I can only set the table. I can put out all the food. You got to put it into your gullet and let it go into your stomach and digest on the inside of you. It's good, Violet. This is good teaching right here. The second question, are you eating from the tree of life? All of this is in the devotion, all of this stuff. And I think sometimes, if you've been a Christian a while, it'd be easy just to read through that and go, yep, I eat from the tree of life. I belong to Jesus. Yep, next. Okay, well, how? How are you eating from the tree of life? Because there were two trees in that garden. And one you weren't supposed to eat from, but the other one you got to eat from. And it opened your eyes to wisdom and beauty and the graciousness of God and creation. Do you eat from it? And if you do, how? Jesus said this in John 15, 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remember that a couple weeks ago? If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can't do anything. And I mean, our stubborn, willful, rebellious mind goes, I can do anything I want. And you know what? You're right. Within reason, you can. But there could be hell to pay. Here's another good question. Are you guilty of minimizing Jesus? And you might think not. Listen to the scripture that came with that part of the devotion. Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Firstborn over all creation. 
Everything was created by him in heaven and on the earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things are held together. Do you minimize him? And you might, you might think you don't minimize him, but do you read through something and just pass, check, next, give me something I haven't heard before? Because if you do, you minimize them. Do you get crabby at people and in your relationships? Do you worry about your bills? Do you, now I've gone to meddling now. See, because if we do anything that's outside of his provision, his instruction, his lordship, his way, truth, and life, we minimized him. And so then what happens next? Repentance. Repentance is the cure every time. And so it's not like we should come in here and feel like we get our butt kicked every Sunday morning because, man, I failed again. No. Uh, do children fail when they fall down when they're trying to walk? No. They just fell, so you get them back up, and then you take another try, right? That's who we are. We're the children of the kingdom of God. We're not failures. We're 100% successes with the Spirit of God living on the inside, guiding every day. But do you minimize him? Don't do that. If you minimize him, repentance is the cure. Help me magnify you in my life, Jesus. See what I'm saying? Are you getting it? We're moving toward Easter. It's just a couple weeks away. I want your heart to be so full and so ready and, and our, our stomachs to be empty and our spirits to be wide open for what God could do. This is a funny story. My, my little granddaughter is getting ready to turn three in April and, and she, now she plays a little game where the little animal's stomachs growl when you're playing with her. And she'll be like, and I'll be, what was that? Did you growl? She goes, no, that's in my stomach. And I'm like, are you hungry? And she goes, he's hungry. And I was like, well, well, let's give him some food. She goes, it'll stop. (laughs) So funny. I'm like, it will stop. You need to get some food in there while you're hungry, though. That's your body telling you that it's hungry. So it's just the idea of let your spirit fill the place of your flesh. It will overtake it, I promise you. Here's another question. Do you feel a need for deliverance from evil? Is there something that just plagues you day and night and you just can't get past? Come on, saints, you've been sitting here with me for five or six years, most of you, a couple years, some of you, some of you are newer. How long will you let that thing trespass in your home? You would never let some enormous, dirty, filthy pig wallow on your furniture. Don't let the enemy have one spot. Let's get rid of him. Do you feel a need for deliverance from evil? Listen to this, Galatians 1.3. Grace to you and peace from God. Okay, grace to you and peace from God. Don't run past this. You, if you knew what those words meant, you would just let them lay on you like a blanket. Grace to me and peace from God. I take it, I receive it. Does anybody come in your house and say, man, it's peaceful here. People tell me that all the time. You know, I'm radical, man. If I feel the enemy sneaking in my house, I will literally open the door and get my broom and start sweeping him out. In the name of Jesus, saying every scripture I can think of, you know, greater is amazing in the world. Get out of here. And, and I'll just open. I, I do that. I mean, that's how I am. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little dramatic. How do you do it, though? Do you need deliverance? And if you do, let's get some for crying out loud, children of God. Here's another one. Can you bow your knee before Jesus right now and confess that he's the Lord? Are you holding anything back? Here's the scripture. Philippians 2.10. At the name of Jesus, 
Every knee will bow. Not should. It will. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. I like that. That's the devil and all of his dominion of demons, in case you didn't know. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, I like this stuff. And then here it's Lent season. This is the newest question that was in there in this devotion. It says, has this season of Lent, you laying something down to recognize what was laid down for you, has it been a burden or a joy? When we talk about it, is it a burden or a joy? Does your mind go, oh, no, I got to fast again? Or does your spirit go, okay, okay. We can dig in for that. Look, we're all made of flesh. I understand. I don't want to fast either. You know, I'm very comfortable with my bread right now. So I understand, you know, but we're, we're going to do it. And we're going to find something in the kingdom. Have you been aware that it's a season of Lent? Are you even aware that that's going on? Or have you just been in your phone? See what I'm saying? It's not, this isn't condemnation. This is education. This is us looking up at the horizon of something that could be different for our lives. Because I, I pretty much know that if we are spending our time doing the same things day after day, looking at a phone, spending all of our time on social media, we're not feeling contentment in our lives. We're minimizing Jesus. We don't bow our knee. He's not the way, the truth, and the life. We're in charge. And that's the church. So a few weeks, three weeks before Easter Sunday, you know, I was talking to a friend in the last couple of days, and she said, have you, have you noticed there's a shift like in the world, a shift in the atmosphere? And I was like, well, what do you mean? I mean, all the time. I mean, I, I, I have kind of an ADHD perspective of things in the spirit. So much is going on all the time. I got to whirl all that together and tighten it up so I can, you know, walk a straight line in kingdom things. And she was like, well, she goes, I basically feel like Jesus is coming back soon and the church isn't ready and I'm a failure and my heart's broken. Conversation around the table. I was like, okay, I don't feel that. You know, I don't, I don't feel like my heart's broken and I sure don't feel like a failure. Sometimes I feel like my heart's broken over us. And how far can we go? And how much could we get done if we could just make Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? We're Christians. If we can't do it here, how is anybody ever going to follow us out there? You check in with me this morning? When Jesus was three weeks before Easter, before he was going to come out of that tomb, three weeks before that, what was he doing? He was getting the disciples ready and telling them everything that was going to happen. That's my job. I don't know if you remember from Ephesians 4, but the job of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And the job of every saint is reconciliation, reconciling people to Christ. I know we haven't said it in a little bit, so y'all forgot. Let me tell you again. My job from Ephesians 4 as your pastor and leader is to train you and build you and teach you for the work of ministry. Not one minister, and you all just live a free-for-all, and I minister. No, every believer is a minister. I'm your pastor. I shepherd you. I guard you, and I, I pull you together, and I speak life and wisdom to you. I'm your friend. I'll pray with you. But my job is to equip you with power and authority from Jesus to go out and make a difference in the world. And your job, and my job, is reconciliation. Okay? You're in the right place. 
Okay, so Jesus was preparing his followers. Let's look at Luke 18:31. You can stand up. We'll read the word together. We'll honor this. It's in red, stuff that Jesus said. Lord, help this word get in our heart. Help it, help it matter. Help it make a difference. Help us to see what you're trying to speak to us today. Luke 18, then he, Jesus, took the 12 aside and he said to them, and by the way, you know, Jesus, by and large, ministers these powerful things to 12 people most of the time, and sometimes three. Yeah, there was a crowd. Yeah, there was a multitude. But most of the time, the big stuff goes to these guys, in case you thought you didn't have enough influence. Okay, so he took the 12 aside, and he said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and all of these things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. He will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This thing was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. You can sit down. Thank you for your attention. I want you to focus on that line that Jesus said, all the things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Okay, do you know what he's talking about? Okay, good, I'll tell you. Okay, all the things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. So Jesus is speaking about just hundreds of messianic prophecies that were written years and years and years before he's on the earth, about him being on the earth. And just for the sake of the teaching, I looked up some for us, Okay. And, and not only these, I'm going to read a handful, and then I'm going to tell you about this experiment that was done in, somewhere in, in California by um, some college students that, are, that were in seminary, okay? So we'll start with this one. 450 years before Easter, okay? 450 years before Easter, the scripture was written in the book of Malachi. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I'm going to send a messenger. He's going before me. And then the Lord who you seek is going to come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. It's a prophecy about the Messiah coming 450 years before he ever came. If you know Bible history, God was prophetically silent for 400 or something years. From the book of Malachi, quiet, all the way until John the Baptist. And if you're a fan of the chosen, they called him Creepy John, okay? Because he's eating locusts and wild honey, and he's screaming about the kingdom of God, and they haven't heard anything for a long time other than the stories that have been passed down from generation to generation, from house to house, told in secret about Moses and those parting waters, and told all about the fiery bush and how God prepared you know, a way for the Israelites to exit Egypt. I mean, all of those stories were like epic tales, but they hadn't seen anything in a long time. And now John the Baptist is speaking, and he has miracles accompanying his work. And people are starting to repent. Okay, It's been quiet for 400 years. I think this is amazing, the way that it, the way that it unfolds. Okay, 550 years. When I'm reading to you these old passages, I want you to understand the New Testament has all of these recorded. 
in the Gospels. You can read them. Read them yourselves. Read the Gospels, and everything I'm mentioning here was written 450 years ago, 500 years before, 1,000 years before, 4,000 years before. I'm going to read all of those kinds of things to us right now. And I don't expect you to retain every single bit of this. We always put the notes and stuff online for you to look at. But what I expect you to do is catch the spirit of this. What is the probability that Jesus could have been the Messiah? That's what we're going to look at and look to. So 500 years before Easter, listen to this one. You can go read these and put them in context. I'm cherry picking for you today. You're welcome. So Zechariah 11. Zechariah, you know, <laughs> Zechariah. That's at the back of the Old Testament books, if you wanted to know. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took 30 pieces of silver, and I threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Zechariah 11. Now you might not understand what that's talking about, so I will tell you. Judas... One of Jesus' disciples betrays him, gives up his location so that he will be murdered in the middle of the night, like a mob hit, for 30 pieces of silver. And then Judas, that snake, tried to give the money back. And they're like, no, you, we hired you. You did the job. And so Judas throws the money in the temple. And they gather it, and they go and buy a potter's field. Okay. Do you understand the probability of the, of the Jews of the day taking that money and actually buying a potter's field to bury the dead in if they knew this scripture right here? Because they were doing everything to prove that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. They never would have done it in all likelihood, but they couldn't help it. You know why? Because God spoke it how many years before? 550 years before Jesus was walking the earth. This stuff blows my mind fulfilled through Judas. God can fulfill things through betrayers. He's powerful. He can do it. Okay, here's another one. Zechariah 12.10. I will pour on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Words you don't want to hurry past. I will pour out the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Prophetic, messianic words uttered 550 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. Obviously, this is fulfilled through Jesus' followers, through the Romans who put him on the cross, through the Jews who insisted that it happened, and they gaze upon him who they pierced. Just let it settle on you. 620 years before Easter, Jeremiah writes this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God, they will be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least to the greatest, says the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. If that's not the gospel story laid out way back when, I just don't know what possibly could be. Are you guys feeling this? I mean, this is like Bible history 101. It's all the kind of stuff. We always say it like this. We'll just do like blanket statements. The whole Old Testament points to the New Testament. All the things in the Old Testament are going to speak about what's going to come in the New Testament. And it all points to what? Messiah, Savior, Jesus. He's coming. And he's going to take away the sin of the world by his blood. There will be one sacrifice made one time for all. Right? Okay, so all this time... Long ago, this stuff is written, 770 years. Can you handle a couple more? You can handle a couple more. 770 years before Easter. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is from Isaiah. Everybody loves Isaiah. I mean, the writings in Isaiah are so poetic to my soul. It's like I can hear God speaking and breathing this stuff on me as I read it. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. In the experiment that we're going to talk about in just a couple minutes, we don't use that one because human reasoning will never accept that a virgin bore a child. They're like, oh, Mary, oh, she did something. They'll never accept that one. So we're not even going to use that in the statistics of the potential of the probability of Jesus being the Messiah. Okay, a couple more. This is from Isaiah also. Remember how many years ago? 770 years before any of this was happening. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. It's Isaiah 43 through 5. Prepare the way of the Lord. <laughs> Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Jesus lets us know later who that is. John the Baptist, right? Whew. Isaiah 53, he's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was on him. And by his stripes, we're healed. It's fulfilled in the life of Jesus, obviously, and the scourge, and the beatings, and the spit. People still reject him. He's still a man of sorrows, I'm sure. If you ever had anyone reject you that you just really liked, or you just really loved. I've had that happen to me so many times in what I do. And it doesn't break my heart because my heart belongs to one, you know, belongs to Jesus and he cares for it really well. And so does my husband. But sometimes people will come along and you just want their, their favor. You want them to like you back and they don't. And you know how that feels? But can you multiply that times humanity and how the Savior would feel? And we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. And he was for us. Woo! Isaiah 61. Y'all might be familiar with this passage. This would be the one that Jesus is going to stand up and read in the temple. 
700 years after it was written, and they opened the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ash, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Man, all of this fulfilled in Jesus' ministry and time on earth. There's like three or four more. I feel like you guys might be getting tired. Are you getting tired? Okay, 800 years before Easter. It shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight, Amos 8, 9. When Jesus actually gave up his spirit, his human body, on that cross, do you know that it turned dark? And you know, it didn't, didn't get sunny again until he came out of the grave? Do you think people were freaking out? Yeah, they had to be. The Romans had to be shaken in their boots, you know? Who would know this all these years, 800 years before it happened? A thousand years before Easter. I've set the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my spirit, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. In other words, Jesus is going to die and live. He's going to suffer a murder, but he's not going to be left dead. He's coming back. This is, this is prophesied 1,000 years in the book of Psalms before Jesus would ever take a step on the earth. Here's Psalm 22. If you could imagine, Jesus is going to say a couple things on the cross that are reminiscent of this, but listen to Psalm 22 written 1,000 years before Jesus ever entered the earth. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. That's a broken piece of pottery thrown out. My tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now you tell me how someone could write that a thousand years before Jesus was here. And when it comes down to the day of crucifixion, these things are like check, checking off boxes of how they happen. How? Could someone know that Jesus' garment was amazing and valuable enough to cast lots for and not to separate and divide? And they did it. Because these things surely happened 4,000 years before Easter. That's right. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15, fulfilled in the death of Jesus and the resurrection. The mathematical probability that Jesus is the Messiah or that he isn't 
Let's look at this. She soaked all that stuff in. Just fall back in love with him and his, his work on earth and on the cross. And it'll be really easy for you to fast this coming week and really easy for you to lay yourself down in worship. Okay. There's several hundred prophecies written like this. We chose about six or eight right there. Jesus said, all the things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man, he was speaking of himself, he loved to do that, will be accomplished. Okay, so about 40 or so years ago, there's this school called the Christian Fellowship at Pasadena, and it's their, it's their college there for, you know, theology and study seminary. And so 600 students participated and created this. And the professor is Peter Stone, Peter Stoner, which I like that because it says stoner, and I think that's funny because I'm immature. But you can look this up and look at all these results on your own if you'd like to. But here's what they discovered. So concerning the prophecy in Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the students asked, well, one man and how many the world over has been born in Bethlehem? And so there were, they do it in mathematical equations, but I'm going to say it to you in terms that we understand. 280,000 men were born in Bethlehem during the time of the prophecies of Micah before the Messiah would come. 280,000. So the students create this experiment. They take 280,000 coins and they draw an X on one of them or a cross on one of them. And they put them in a room, and they send a person in. Now, they send in a blindfolded person, which I, which I guess makes sense, because how would you know? How would the shepherds know that that's the one? How would, how would you find this one man out of 280,000 of all the men that were born there during that time, and he's the Messiah? And if you put someone in the room with 280,000 coins, there's a cross on one, and you say, go find it, the probability of them finding it is one in 280,000, Right? It's not very good odds. Okay, so then they, then they take the next few. Some of these are the, um, are the prophecies that they were using, and they said it like this. Okay, I'm going to read it because I'll mess it up if I don't. I have all the scripture references of all the prophetic words, too. If you guys ever want those, just tell me. I'll send you my notes. So what is the chance that one person could fulfill eight prophecies? I mean, one, if, just to fulfill the one being born in Bethlehem, is one in 280,000 chance, okay? So for a total of eight prophecies, what is the chance of person can fill them? Okay, so it's one in 10 to the 17th power, or that is a one followed by 17 zeros. That's how many, that's the likeliness that you could fulfill eight prophecies in a lifetime, one single person. Do you get that? Did you write that down? Is that number up there? Okay. So if we added a silver dollar with the cross on it and the mix of coins poured it out over the state of Texas, okay, that's going to be one in one with 17. I mean, can you, do you get the probability that it's not going to be able to happen? Okay, next, the math students doubled the number of prophecies to 16. We're not even close to how many there actually were fulfilled. I hope you're getting this. I hope you're understanding just the holiness and the greatness of, of this leading you up to Easter. So they doubled the number to 18 or 16 prophecies without including the virgin birth because no one believes that anyway on the earth except for Christians. So the chances of one person fulfilling 16 messianic prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. So 10 with 45 zeros behind it. Are you, are you getting the unlikeliness? It's not like God 
left it, that any margin of error that someone could have done this without him is just not possible. Okay, we've only gone, they go up to 48 prophecies, 157 zeros following the one. And then he talks about how if you, if you put that, that many coins, they would go all the way to the moon and back. And you're trying to find the probability of this one person being able to do all of these things. All of the things we just read, even to the point there's one where they talk about him having vinegar put in his mouth when he's dying on the cross. You know, how could anyone foresee and do that in the moment? It's just not possible, but it did happen, right? You guys can stand up. I'm going to have you stand up with me while I close on this. We all know it, but there's only one way possible that Jesus could have fulfilled all those prophecies. And it can only happen if he's really God. There's just no other likelihood. I'm not talking about the ones that science won't claim. I'm talking about things that were documented. Do you know the Bible's a historic book? Did you know it's qualified as a historic book by historians, by theologians? It holds the water. It knows where the things are. It tells you all the secrets. That's why we value the Bible. That's why we live by it. That's why if it says it, we're trying to do it. We're giving our lives, letting him be the way, the truth, and the life over us. The Bible documents all of these things. I want to ask you a question here. Have you thought, also from our devotions, about how personal Jesus' action was in coming here? Because Jesus blew everybody's mind in doing this. Can you imagine all of heaven going, you're going to do what? You're our king. You're the savior. You're sustained. And he comes to earth for, for you, for me. Have you thought about how personal he made that? And can you make it personal yourself? It's three weeks till Easter. What does that mean to you? Can you pour over some scripture? Can you think of something to set aside? on these next three weeks and offer it to him and remember everything that he did for you because it's because of him and all these beautiful things that we just read that you can live in grace, that you can have your being, that you can move about, that you have healing, that you have friendship, man, that people like you. People like you. You have the favor of God on your life. You have peace that people can't even understand. Yeah, does that mean you don't go through anything? No, you go through a lot, and we see that. And he sees that. Can you take some time for this next three weeks and lay something aside during Lent that he might speak to you? Yes? Okay. Thank you, God. Thank you for this beautiful word. Thank you for the prophecies of old that still astound us in your presence, God. Thank you for the suffering and everything that you've endured, Jesus. Mostly, I just thank you for having a vision to come and a heart to love people. Father, let that heart be in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Love you. See you next time. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to like and follow for the next installment of the Loft Podcast. If you want to be a partner with Aloft, you can give on Givelify.com. If you need more information, check us out on Facebook or at theloftgathering.com. And of course, join us 
1030 Sunday mornings. Hope you have a great week. Till next time.